Wisconsin's afternoon news is on the air. Broadcasting live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue in beautiful downtown Milwaukee. Here's John McCure. All right, happy Tuesday. Hope your day's going absolutely fantastic. Some sun out there today. That sure is nice. We've got a lot of ground we're going to cover on this afternoon show, and we begin right here. This is the three. At three on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. First up, Sandy. Milwaukee's Mitchell International Airport is receiving federal dollars to fund renovation work. Yeah, a lot of money. $5.1 million in federal funding coming from the FAA. Primarily, it's going to be used to fix the roof. It's not very sexy work, but it's important work. Concourse D, which is where American Airlines is, Delta Airlines, Frontier, Spirit, and a couple other smaller airlines. That is Concourse D. And they say that the roof has reached the end of its useful life. So instead of tax dollars being raised here locally, or instead of bonding, borrowing for it, they will use federal money to fix that roof. By the way, I've often wondered about this. Four years ago, they announced they were going to completely renovate Terminal Concourse E. That's where the limited international flights come in and out. That is still on the back burner. What's the second story? The Milwaukee Brewers unveil a new award to honor Wisconsin's first responders this season. This is so cool. So they're launching the Brewers Hometown Champions Award, and they will recognize the courage, commitment, and sacrifices of the men and women in fire rescue service, law enforcement, emergency medical services, and first responder roles across Wisconsin. The first recipient is fallen Milwaukee police officer Peter Jerving, who was shot and killed on February 6th. His family will be honored on April 25th in a pregame ceremony on site to throw out a first pitch. And they'll do this every month. I love that they do this. Yeah. Very similar to what they already do for the military. I always like that. Yeah. So this is a, this is good stuff. And it starts with the honoring of Officer Peter Jerving. Surefire way to get the crowd on their feet. Yep. Standing ovations. You got that right. All right. What's the third thing? On a brand new list of the least stressful cities to live. A Wisconsin community is in the number one spot. Wow. Okay, we'll give you a hint. It's not Milwaukee, (laughs) but there is a Wisconsin city right at the very top. Share some of the list with us. Some of the list for least stressful cities. Believe it or not, Minneapolis is number four. Okay. They're kind of our neighbors. Minneapolis at four. Fremont, California. In Colorado, Fort Collins is number two. Okay. Number one. Madison, Wisconsin. Really? Yeah. Do they break it down? Do they give criteria or they talk about why? Break it down to the average work week and the average round trip commute, okay. those sorts of criteria. and Average work week, so that means like as in how many hours the average person works? 36.6 what? hours. Slackers. <laughs> I know, that is kind of funny. <laughs> wow. My life is good But your Madison. average commute is about 37 minutes. Okay. And that commute, only 20% of that is before 7 a.m. All right, that's easy. And about 26.5% are remote workers. Ooh, that's nice, So that nice could be too. part of that. And plus the income growth rate, 4.5%. All right, good stuff. Yeah, so hey, uh, good. don't, don't good argue Madison. with the math. And I'm assuming they didn't interview many politicians. I think those are the more <laughs> stressful jobs well, in that city. Well, that's where the work level came down. That's why it's so low. <laughs> oh! It is 313 at WTMJ. One of those politicians, he's not based in Madison. He is U.S. Congressman Mike Gallagher, got an important public hearing tonight. He's at the center of the universe when it comes to being an expert on China. Representative Gallagher with us up next on WTMJ. U.S. Congressman Mike Gallagher is the chairman of a new committee on China, and they've got a very big hearing tonight. 
The congressman has made some time for us this afternoon. Congressman Gallagher, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be with you. So tonight's hearing, what what will be the primary focus of this very first hearing? What are you hoping to uh, to knock down, to accomplish? We're hoping to explain to our colleagues and the American people why they should care about the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party, why this isn't just a distant, over-there threat, the matter of some obscure territorial claim in the East China Sea, but a right-here-at-home threat, something that every uh, citizen of America and the state of Wisconsin should absolutely pay, pay attention to. And so we want to uh, set the stage for the work of this committee. And also, I think we want to send a bipartisan tone. Uh, thus far, we've been able to operate in a bipartisan manner. We want uh, Republicans and Democrats to be working together to counter this very real threat to our national security. Congressman, you and I have spoken through the years. Uh, you were an early leader on why China on multi is the biggest threat to the United States. Uh, militarily and economically, do you believe they pose the biggest threat to the United States? Without question, I think they pose the biggest threat to the United States. I would call this an existential threat because it's a question of what kind of world do we want to live in. I think the model of techno-totalitarian control that the Chinese Communist Party is perfecting in the Xinjiang Autonomous Region, perfecting on their own citizens, is not something that's going to stay confined uh, within China's borders. It's a model they want to export around the world. And I actually just had an event with uh, Hong Kongers, uh, people from Hong Kong, uh, many of whom, it's two years ago that there were 47 Hong Kong democracy, democracy activists who were arrested without cause by the CCP, thrown in jail. They remain in jail this day. Uh, the experience of Hong Kong shows that this threat is going to spread. And when I was in Taiwan last week for four days, they spoke about Hong Kong as evidence that the CCP threat continues to spread around the world. And, of course, they feel like they're under assault every single day from the Chinese Communist Party. So this is something we have to tackle with a greater sense of urgency. Uh, we've been sleepwalking for too long, and it's time we start fighting back. And you've got a specific name for the panel that you're on and a reason for that. The House Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. That's a mouthful. Yeah, that's yeah, it's a mouthful. We're calling it the uh, colloquially the Select Committee on China, uh, more accurately the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. And you know, we want to single out the Chinese Communist Party for a few reasons. One, it conveys something essential about how the government works in China, which is to say the party controlled everything, and increasingly a small portion of the party, the Politburo Standing Committee, and increasingly one person in the form of General Secretary Xi Jinping controls everything. Um, so the party state is the threat we face. And the second related message is that the Chinese people are not our enemy. We don't have a problem with the Chinese people. The Chinese people are the primary victims of the party's oppression. So understanding that distinction between the party and the people is critical to getting our policy right going forward. I want to jump in and follow up on your trip to Taiwan. You took a covert trip to Taiwan. Uh, what did you discover over there that gave you the most pause? Well, it wasn't covert. I flew direct commercial from Chicago O'Hare. So, uh, <laughs> That's not very undercover. Any, <laughs> yes, as any American is welcome to do. <laughs> um, but uh, I just didn't publicize it in advance, and I, I didn't do press until afterwards, in part because I just wanted to have more candid discussions with um, uh, my counterparts in Taiwan, and I was fortunate enough to meet with the president, the vice president, the minister of defense, 
the national security advisor, the head of their intel community. And really my big takeaway was that we're not moving fast enough to deliver the weapons that they purchased from us. Uh, there's a backlog totaling $19 billion. And if we want to avoid a war in Taiwan, if we want to avoid a similar collapse of deterrence like that we saw in Ukraine, we just have to be moving faster to deliver these weapons systems. The second thing is we really have a deficient economic strategy. The Taiwanese want a free trade agreement with us. We're just not making progress on that. There's some double taxation issues that we could fix that would stimulate Taiwanese investment in the United States. And then the third thing is that, you know, Taiwanese leaders across the board talked about this increasing strategic convergence between Russia and China. They see the threat, uh, the crisis in Ukraine is connected to the increasing crisis uh, involving them as well. And so to separate those problems, I think, would be a mistake. We have to view Vladimir Putin as Xi Jinping's junior partner in an alliance against the West. Talking with U.S. Representative Mike Gallagher. And uh, Mr. Gallagher, as you um, are working to try to improve U.S.-China relations, uh, with the new information that no one knows for sure, but COVID may truly have come from a Chinese lab, do you perceive the White House is maybe downplaying this news for diplomacy to help benefit relationships between the U.S. and China? It seems like they're downplaying it, and it's baffling because if we want to avoid a future pandemic, we have to understand how this one started. And let's say they don't believe the lab leak theory, and the lab leak theory is far more plausible than the zoonotic origin theory. Um, why would they not be rushing or pressuring the Chinese Communist Party to provide more information? Why would they not be more forthcoming in disclosing information that the executive branch has so that we can understand how this happened? And regardless of whether you think it came from a wet market or a lab, there's no question that the CCP covered this thing up. It should tell us something fundamental about the regime we're dealing with. This regime cannot be trusted. So I've been very disappointed in the White House's response or lack thereof. And here's the other thing. There's a lot of scientists, leaders in our public health community that have been calling for enhanced collaboration with Chinese scientists that were funneling U.S. taxpayer dollars to collaborative research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And so they don't want to admit that they were wrong. They don't want to accept any blame for the origin of the pandemic. And they want to continue this dangerous research. If we were acting rationally, if we were behaving like a sane country, we would outlaw that dangerous gain-of-function research, and we would be demanding more accountability from the Chinese Communist Party. Congressman, the White House has directed federal agencies that they have 30 days now to take TikTok from all government-issued devices. Why is TikTok dangerous? Well, there's really two issues here. Uh, one is just, uh, well, the basic ownership structure is working in the background. TikTok is owned by a company called ByteDance, and ByteDance is effectively controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, um, as is every major Chinese company. Um, the second thing is the ability for ByteDance then to use TikTok to track your location, to spy on you, to exfiltrate data from your phone. But really the third thing I think is the biggest threat. By controlling the algorithm, TikTok can effectively control what information you get because TikTok is no longer just a forum for dumb dance videos that teenagers use. It is a, a mechanism for people to get their news. So we have to ask ourselves if we want a company that's effectively controlled by the Chinese Communist Party to be the most dominant media company in America. That could affect our sense of reality, our sense of national identity. This is the greatest influence operation in human history, and we are just not taking it seriously 
enough. I get that it's highly addictive. I get that this doesn't make me popular with teenagers in Wisconsin, but we simply cannot give the CCP that much leverage over us. U.S. Congressman Mike Gallagher chairs the Select Committee on China. Uh, you can check it out. If you've never watched C-SPAN, watch it tonight. It's going to be on C-SPAN. I think it starts 6 o'clock our time. Congressman, thank you so much for making some time for us. Thank you. Wisconsin's Afternoon News on WTMJ. Take me out to the Oh, yeah, spring training is underway, and while we know the players will be getting several practice reps over the next few weeks, it's spring training for the broadcast team as well. Greg Matzik is in Arizona for spring training this week and can confirm. The Brewers' annual 30 or so spring training games are designed to prepare the team for the rigors of the 162-game regular season. But don't think the Cactus League is only for the players to get the kinks out before April. Brewers Radio is on the air from sunny Arizona. That's right. It's spring training for the Brewers broadcast team of Bob Uecker, Lane Grindle, and Jeff Levering, too. I wish you folks could see my scorebook right now. The spelling that I've come up with for some folks is atrocious. I mean, it's not even close. Any play-by-play man will tell you, keeping a tidy scorebook is essential. But keeping up with the changes made in a spring training game is a dizzying exercise. You have to let it go a little bit in spring training and understand that there's going to be, you know, guys' names spelled wrong. Um, Sometimes you're going to be spelling them as they're pronounced because you've never heard of them before. I mean, there's there's always a few of those guys in every game. So you just have to let go of that. Otherwise, it's going to drive you crazy. So what does one do when a player enters the game who doesn't appear in the game notes? I've made up names. I'm not going to lie. I've made up names. Um, you know, there are some guys with other teams that will make up a name every single day or they've got family members that have been gone for a few years and he will mix them as names of players. Now, I try... Wait, did you say a dead relative? Gets yes. Put- yeah, dead relative. Oh, I've been gone for 100 years. <laughs> well, luckily, Levering and Grindle have a more seasoned vet in Bob Uecker whom they can learn from. Get up! Get out of here! Here's what I've been doing. Slow pitch softball, senior citizens, and there's no bats or balls. They write on a piece of paper what they did, like they hit a single or a double, and then I announce it. I guess to be the best, the key is to learn from the best. We go over all the rosters, every single one of them, to make sure we've all got it right. And Bob just takes us to school every single year. I don't know what it is. Typically, Bob will say, Jeff Jelilich, and then we, we go around and everybody pronounces it once, and then we'll do that about five times till everybody's got it down. Yeah. In essence, the first 15 to 20 games of the Cactus League season are a bit of a crapshoot for players and broadcasters alike. It's kind of survival of the fittest with your scorebook down here. From Brewer Spring Training, Greg Matzik, WTMJ Sports. Hey, Greg is with us from Arizona. All right, so uh, Burnsy and Woody better be careful with Devin Williams slated to start this game coming up. There could be a flipping of the of the rotation there. Well, I just stack your rotation with uh, all star starters, <laughs> exactly. right? Exactly. So- uh, it, it's a way to ensure that Devin gets uh, an honest look against uh, an honest lineup uh, at just a different time of the game than used to. But uh, the Brewers used nine pitchers yesterday. Uh-huh. Everybody pitched an inning, and, and that's kind of where they're at right now. And as February turns to March, nobody's trying to do too much work, but everybody needs to get their work in. Greg, I know these games have been fast, but spring is always faster. It's not usually this fast, but it's always a little faster because they do clean innings. They don't switch pitchers in the middle of the inning, but it has really picked up the pace this spring, hasn't it? 
Yeah, I, baseball might be onto something. I, I think if, if you get a longer game, it's because there's likely more action. And if you get a shorter game, right now it's 3-2 in the seventh inning. The, the Cubs have finally done something on offense as Pat Murphy goes out to talk to the Brewers pitcher right now. So there's one of the only delays I've seen in the game here. But you're talking about rapid pace. Just There's always something happening. A pitch is being thrown, ball in play. So games have been about two and a half hours on average to start. Yesterday's Brewers game went a little longer than that, but... Uh, I haven't seen anything above three hours since I've been down here. Have you gauged wow. any of the fan reaction to it so far? Because these are the diehards that are coming out to see our favorite teams. Yeah, I ran into a few at the airport. Very easy to spot Brewers fans because they're wearing Brewers blue, the same kind of hoodie sweatshirt that Craig Council wears in the dugout I saw at the airport on repeat. And uh, today's a nice mix. I would say the the stands are about you know, 60% full, nice little crowd of people out in the uh, outfield on the grass with picnics, blankets out there, some dogs walking around, some children running around playing catch with their baseball and football. If you're here and you're out in the lawn, you're really enjoying your best life because there's a line in Kugel stand about 20 yards from wherever you're sitting. Nice. Greg Matzik at Spring Training. Good to have you out there, Greg. Wish we were with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's 343 at WTMJ. He is the best in the business. Major Garrett is CBS's chief Washington correspondent. The Takeout podcast is heard here on WTMJ. Sometimes it's light. Sometimes it's very newsy. It's always entertaining. And the big truth is Major's book. Major, thank you so much for being with us on this Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, John. How is everybody? Man, I think we're doing great. <laughs> right? Good, yeah. Uh, I want yeah. to ask you about the Supreme Court thing that's going on today. Here, here's where I'm intrigued. So the Supreme Court is hearing whether or not Joe Biden, the president's student debt forgiveness mm. deal, is okay. The president himself said that he didn't have the authority to do this, and then he went ahead and did it. Where are right. we at? Take us inside this. So that was the president's original orientation to this entire question how much could you forgive in student loan debt and by what mechanism and there was a lot of progressive pressure on the president to go very very big to to effectively or nearly cancel all accumulated student debt president didn't do that he found a dollar amount but the elusive question for the administration always was by what legal authority and the administration's lawyers went and found legislative language in the HEROES Act that they thought was enough to cover what was essentially an executive forgiveness of this debt. Congress and states have said, you can't do that. That legislative language doesn't allow this. You're way over interpreting that underlying language. And until Congress does this, it's not constitutional. You've overstepped your authority as president to do this. And that's what the Supreme Court is studying in oral arguments today. And I've said on this program, almost from the jump, that this would have a very tough legal terrain to climb for the administration because of what you said, John, and because clearly the legislation the administration points to wasn't intended, didn't have anything really to do with this particular subject. It's a reading into it, and administrations have done that in the past, but this is a very significant, almost... um, I don't know, episodic reading. Like, you have to go three episodes into the legislative language to find the true intent that the administration thinks it has found. So I think the Supreme Court is going to be very skeptical, as other federal courts have been as well. I want to ask you about another thing that's in the news, Major Major Garrett, with us on WTMJ. 
Speaker Kevin McCarthy releases the January 6th footage exclusively to Fox's Tucker Carlson. Other media outlets yeah. have requested it. Um, I know, because I benefit from it sometimes, that sometimes things are exclusively given to one outfit over another. This seems different than that. Should all Americans be able to see that footage? Well, if the Speaker believed in transparency, that would be the case. He says he does. I'm not sure how an editorialist, and that's the most charitable description of Tucker Carlson. The, remember, Fox News does not and has not ever called him a journalist, doesn't in court pa- papers that Fox News files. So I'm only saying what Fox News says about Tucker Carlson. He's not a journalist. Some people regard him as a propagandist. I'll just call him an editorialist. Why does Tucker Carlson, an editorialist who has a built-in bias, as all editorialists do, have exclusive access to this? Why not crowdsource it? Why not provide it to everybody? Well, the simple truth is the reason that Kevin Mc- one of the reasons Kevin McCarthy is speaker is he made a lot of last-minute concessions to get the votes from hardline conservatives in the sort of Trumpian wing of the House Republican Congress, Congress to become speaker. And one of them was this. Not just release it, but give it to a particular editorialist who had a particular point of view about this underlying subject. That satisfied the hardliners. They voted or abstained in Kevin McCarthy's bid for the speaker, and he became speaker, thus empowered to do this. So it's a political transaction about something that the speaker says is a really important topic. Well, if it's so important, let everyone see it. I mean, if it's really that important, let everyone see it. Crowdsource it. All sorts of people can look at it and find all sorts of things faster than Tucker Carlson and his staff would find it. But this is a particular transaction of a political nature about something that's pretty sensitive and a topic that is very big for the country what happened on january 6th i don't believe all this video is going to tell us anything fundamentally different than what we already know there are some on the right who believe it will good luck i have a real problem with this major i mean this is not just asking for a copy of a car crash report this is and then not not only giving it to tucker carlson he has the right to do that but saying, I'll give it to CBS News, I'll give it to the Wall Street Journal eventually when I get around to it. I mean, this is too important to play this sort of game with this particular piece of information. I would totally agree with that. And I would say, look, Mr. Speaker, if you are going to release video that the Capitol Police Board, that others who are part of the Capitol Security Complex have said in public, could release information about the way that the Capitol itself is secured and the way people exit in moments of duress, you're therefore exposing the Capitol to knowledge that security experts would prefer the public not have because it endangers people who work there, not just lawmakers, but reporters and staff, senior and otherwise. Why are you doing this? What is the public interest served by that? Well, the speaker hasn't answered that. He's only saying, well, the public has a right to know. Does it have a right to know everything about the the Capitol complex? And if you believe so, explain why. And it's selectivity and giving it selectively to someone who clearly has an agenda about this is not about transparency. It is about a political deal struck in a back room to become Speaker of the House, pure and simple. And certainly for a side of the population that has already said so many times, oh, no, 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 we're tired of hearing about it. 
it's old history. We don't want to talk about it anymore until they have right. the footage in their hands and now want to make a miniseries or however they now want to use their filter to tell whatever, uh, to, to cherry pick whatever they want to pull. That's a perfect description. Use their filter. Filter it their own way. And one thing that I'm reminded about before this controversy surfaced, one set in motion entirely by this backroom deal cut by the Speaker of the House. There was a lot of criticism on the Republican side of the January 6th committee because it, at, at, up until a certain point, had not released the full transcripts of all its depositions. And so what you frequently heard was, well, they're just cherry-picking the worst things from those depositions, not giving the public the full reading of what the witnesses said, because there have to be things in there that would recontextualize things more favorably for President Trump or now former President Trump, or those around him, or the underlying questions about the legitimacy of the election. They're burying all that because they don't want you to see it. Those transcripts in full have been available to the public since the end of the last Congress, last December. Fully available for everyone to take a look at. How many stories or how many speeches have you heard from Republicans who have unearthed all these pieces of evidence in those depositions that recontextualize either what Trump did or contemplated, or what he was told, or the narrative created by the January 6th committee. Zero. I believe fundamentally this video will not alter our understanding, our deep-seated traumatic comprehension of January 6th, in the exact same way that those full depositions didn't tell a different story than the January 6th committee presented. That's the story, folks. That's what happened. Major Garrett is CBS's chief Washington correspondent. The book is The Big Truth. Check it out. And the Takeout Podcast is heard uh, Saturday at 5 o'clock here on WTMJ. Major, thank you so much for making some time for us. Thanks. We'll talk next week.